welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. to be in Luke 23 this morning as we begin a new series that uh, will take you into the experience of eyewitnesses of the cross. And we'll go over what they saw and bring you into the great story of salvation. The text that we'll be drawing from today, as I said, is in Luke 23. So as we stand and honor the word of God, allow me to read it in your hearing. Luke 23 verses 13 through 25. Let us hear God's word. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is God's holy word. May the story it tells break upon our hearts with fresh power. Father, we come and ask you, O God, to Help us see through the eyes of those who were there that day the remarkable, poignant, striking, but in the end hopeful story of salvation that is in this text and lived out among these people. Come over the preaching, Holy Spirit. Open the great story of the Son whom you adore and want to honor. Let us emerge from this service adoring him more deeply because of what he's done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, this past week I had the honor and uh, joyful privilege of speaking to the missionary aviation trainees, students at Moody Aviation here in Spokane, 
and uh, to their faculty, their instructor pilots, and other people from the aviation community in the big hangar there out at Feltz Field. It was a true joy. During one of the breaks, Gene Arnold, who is an instructor there and uh, a missionary aviator whom we support, who is part of our church, took me upstairs to their new flight simulator center. It was a fascinating trip. They have several flight simulators that all their students begin their training with before they get into a real airplane. And he let me sit in the left seat of uh, one of the simulators. It's, it's almost kind of a surround sound and surround video experience with all the instruments of the normal airplanes there. And it's designed to replicate in a virtual reality kind of way everything about the task and the experience of flying. The visual field is so computer perfect that every image is an actual image from the surrounding area. From taxiing to take off to wherever you would fly, it's all perfect. In fact, Gene said, if we were to take, if I were to take you up in this simulator and we flew a course over your house, we could see your house through the window, all computer reality. It was a fascinating little experience. And Gene told me that they, they took one of their first students without, who had no knowledge of flight and they put him through 20 hours in the simulator before he ever went out to the flight line and sat in a real airplane. After the 20 hours, an instructor went out with this student, sat him in the airplane for the first time. And with the knowledge that he'd gained through the virtual eyes of the simulator, the student was able to pre-flight the airplane. He was able to start the airplane. He was able to taxi out to the runway, get set up on the runway threshold, call all of his radio clearances, take the airplane off, fly it around the pattern, set the conf configure the airplane for landing, get on the glide slope, bring the aircraft down to landing over the threshold, even to flare the airplane, which is the final moment when gravity takes you to landing just as effectively as, as if he'd been in the real airplane for many hours. The only thing the instructor had to do was move the rudder pedals a little bit to keep the airplane on center line after the student landed the airplane first try. That's fantastic. If you've ever been a student pilot, you know how amazing that is. Virtual reality. The student was able to do that because he saw it through virtual eyes, almost like having been there. Well, we want this next sermon series, which will lead up to Easter Sunday, to do something like that as pastors. We want you to see the cross through the virtual eyes of several people who were witnesses or who were participants in the crucifixion story. We want you to take through what take we want to take you through what they saw, these eyewitnesses of the cross. We want to tell you their stories from scripture. And link them to your story of faith and link it all to salvation's great story. Today we're going to begin with a notorious but little known character named Barabbas. Now most Christians who've got some Bible knowledge will be familiar with the name Barabbas and maybe even the story but they don't know much about Barabbas. Well, relax. That's because there isn't much to know. He's a notorious biblical character, but we have that much knowledge about him. And he's vanished into history, so the Bible scholars can't give us any insights about him either. 
There is not much to know, but the symbol of his story, the story that his story tells is powerful. And that's where we'll be discovering some great redemptive truth. So what I want to do today is approach this message in two ways. I'm going to take you through the story in Luke 23 and Matthew 27 about the trial that Pilate put Jesus through and the dilemma that Pilate was in, and then how Barabbas surfaces in that story. I'm going to take you through every moment of that. And then I'm going to take you through what I call the significance of it all. Let's begin with the story itself. And we'll find Barabbas has his place there. Matthew, Matthew 27 and Luke 23 describe the final morning of the week we know as Passion Week. The week had started several days before with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We celebrate that as Palm Sunday in our Christian traditions today. He entered the city in triumph, seated on the, the foal of a donkey. People shouting Hosanna to the son of David. All Jerusalem, it seemed, swept out to welcome him into the city as he came down the trail from the Mount of Olives. They welcomed him as what they thought was the Jewish Messiah, a Messiah who was a political deliverer, someone who would defeat Israel's enemies, the Romans, in a flash of power and brilliance, and who would then bring Israel into a golden age of prosperity and power and peace and joy. That's who they were welcoming into Jerusalem on what we would call Palm Sunday morning, but that's not who Jesus was as he came. He came seated on a donkey to fulfill prophecy that he was the lowly servant of God and that the true goal of his journey to Jerusalem was to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the people, to be a passion lamb to be one who gave his life before he returned in power. They didn't understand this. They were looking for him to go immediately to the fortress of Antonia at that high point in Jerusalem where the Roman garrison was and to destroy the Roman garrison with the word of his mouth and the power of his arm. Instead, Jesus came that morning on Palm Sunday and that evening and the next day and he swept into the temple and he cleansed the temple. He threw the, the, the Jewish leaders and, and all the vendors and everyone who was violating the law of God. He made a whip of cords and drove them out of the temple. Not a beginning that they were expecting. Then he began to preach sermon after sermon that week of judgment and conviction over their sins and over how they had rejected the love of God and had put their religion before a relationship with the Redeemer. He was preparing them to understand in one final week the depth of their sins so that when he did die on Calvary, they would know that he was the Lamb of God who had suffered for their sins. But they just tasted the sting of his preaching and they didn't know the sweetness of salvation. And so they began to grow in anger against him. The crowds turned against him about midweek and began to question him and filter away from listening to him. Also in that time, the chief priests and the Pharisees behind the scenes had finally been able to knit together their long-designed uh, strategy to have Jesus betrayed and executed. Satan had provided a betrayer named Judas Iscariot. A deal had been struck in a back room of the temple for 30 pieces of silver. The betrayal had been set. That happened the night before, after Jesus had met with his disciples in the upper room on what we would probably see as Thursday night. 
held a Passover celebration with them, gave them his final instructions, led them down the hillside early, uh, late that night into the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed and agonized with the Father over what was coming. And then after some hours, Judas came with his betrayer's kiss and the soldiers took Jesus into custody. And they began to run him through one of several false mockeries of a trial. First through Annas, the high priest, then through Caiaphas. And then finally, the trials come to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate was involved because Pilate, as the Roman governor, was the only leader who had the authority to execute capital punishment. And these leaders wanted Jesus, not just imprisoned, they wanted him dead. Pilate was the only one with the authority to do that. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate in the early morning hours of what we would now come to know as Good Friday. It would be a bloody Friday, and it began in the early hours of the morning as they gathered around Pilate's praetorium. He was awakened and told that the Jews had a prisoner that must be tried early this morning. And so Jesus encounters Pilate. And Pilate begins to question the crowds about their charges and Jesus about his response. Through that morning, Pilate comes to a conclusion. And with that, we begin the description of the story. Let me break it into several parts for you. Let's first talk talk about what Luke tells us was a conclusion that Pilate came to after hearing the charges of the crowd and the leaders and after examining Jesus. We pick it up, Luke 23, verse 13. Pilate, having heard the charges and examined Jesus, having actually sent him over to Herod as well to be examined, another ruler of the time, receives Jesus back and he comes to a conclusion that Jesus is not guilty of these charges. He called them back together, verse 13, the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. They put him into a false trial. Pilate said, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. What is he talking about here? Well, Pilate was in a bit of a dilemma. He had a bad relationship with the Jewish community in Jerusalem, the leaders. They had sent many complaints back to Rome itself about Pilate's harshness and rulership. His political career was hanging by a thread. And he knew that the Jewish leaders had already threatened him and told him, this man, Jesus, has made himself out to be a king. But we know there's no king but Caesar. Rome will not look kindly on you letting a man like this go. So Pilate was under political pressure that if he let Christ go and didn't satisfy the leaders in the crowd, message would get back to Caesar's praetorium in Rome and Pilate's career would be in jeopardy. But he was also pressed by the murderous crowd that had been brought together by the Jewish leaders that was filling the square outside of his his residence With anger and threats, he also felt he might have a mob and a riot on his hands. So there were the double pressures on Pilate. A third pressure was his conscience. Even though he didn't have any relationship with the Redeemer God, he was a pagan, secularized Roman. Even he had a conscience 
And he was troubled by the fact that he found no guilt in Jesus whatever. And so he wanted to to get to a, 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 a conclusion where Jesus would be allowed to go free, but the crowds would somehow be satisfied. And so he says in verse 16, I'll therefore punish and release him. Punishing meant scourging him, whipping him as a Roman punishment. He felt that would be, come across as a warning that Rome took this, this somewhat seriously. It would warn Jesus from doing anything more like this in the future. And the blood going down Jesus's back from the scourging would satisfy the crowd. So his conclusion comes with an offer. I'll punish him. I'll scourge him severely. And then I'll release him. The crowd, however, would have nothing to do with that. Verse 18, the first phrase. But they all cried out together, away with this man. They didn't want a lesser punishment. They wanted Jesus crucified. Now Pilate comes into his dilemma more deeply. His conclusion is clear. There is no guilt in this man at all. Nothing of what you said is true. But he has to find a way out. And so he seizes on what I would call a custom. His conclusion is the man is innocent. I've got to find a way out. They won't let me find a way out. I'm going to leverage a custom that he was well aware of. And we know that in Matthew 27, if you turn there in your Bibles... We see that the same scene is described by Matthew. And in verse 15 of Matthew 27, Matthew describes a custom that was in play at the time. And Pilate seizes on this custom as a way out of this fix. Now at the feast, Matthew 27, 15, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. What was this all about? Well, We know that this was an actual custom of the time. One commentator I looked at this week described it this way. Pilate actually proposed Christ's release in fulfillment of a custom that was in place at the time as a diplomatic gesture toward the Jews and in order to promote goodwill on the feast day of Passover, the Roman governor in Jerusalem would release one Jewish prisoner from Roman custody every Passover. There were other people in prison deserving their fate, facing their fate, and Rome would show mercy and kindness one time a year. Now, a lot of people read that and think that that means that the crowd could get any choice at all. That's not true. Rome was still in charge here. The commentator goes on. Matthew is not suggesting that the Roman governor would automatically release whomever the people wished, allowing them to choose from all the prisoners in custody at the time. Instead, what he means is that a few offenders were selected by the Roman official in advance, and those few names were given to the people as candidates from which they were to choose one. And the one they chose, Rome would grant an automatic pardon to that prisoner. Complete pardon and complete freedom. If you think about it, that's really what was going on in Luke 23. That's what was going on. Pilate realized, listen, These people are becoming more agitated. My conscience troubles me still. I'm going to leverage this custom and I'm going to make them an offer. I'm not going to choose three or four prisoners this year that they can choose from. I'm only going to choose two prisoners. And so Pilate, the scriptures tell us in Matthew and also in Mark, chose two prisoners. 
I have a custom, he called out to the crowds. You know I can release one prisoner, and I give you a choice of two. I give you this Jesus of Nazareth, or I give you Barabbas. Now, who was Barabbas? Well, Matthew and Luke tell us. Matthew and Luke both describe. Luke 23, 19 says, Barabbas was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Matthew and Mark actually add that he was also a robber. Now, Barabbas was a career criminal. He started his career as a robber. That's a kind word. The word actually meant a bandit. On all the roads leading to Jerusalem, bandits would hide and travelers coming to Jerusalem would suddenly be jumped by these armed bandits. They'd be held up, often beaten senseless and left on the road to die. Jesus told a parable about that, the parable of the good Samaritan. Well known the bandits were and much hated by the people because they were defenseless against these bandits. Barnabas apparently started, Barabbas rather, (laughs) Pardon me, Barabbas. What a total contrast of names. (laughs) I knew I was going to do it sometime in the message. I just got it over with, okay? (laughs) Barabbas started his career as a petty criminal, a violent thief, hated by the people. But then he escalated it, and he started an insurrection against Rome in the city to gather power to himself and create havoc. That insurrection failed. But what it did bring from Rome was more oppression, and the people hated Barnabas. There you go. The people hated, just signed it out for me, Barabbas for that. He led the insurrection. He apparently capped it off in the insurrection with murder. He may have murdered a Roman official or a Roman soldier as part of this short lived insurrection, and he was. Tried and convicted, apparently, for all of those crimes. He was in prison at this very moment in the story. And he was awaiting a certain future. Where was Barabbas headed? He was headed for Crucifixion Hill. Golgotha. Calvary. That's where his destination was, because any time you could have committed a crime against the rule of the state of Rome, which is what insurrection was, You were executed by crucifixion. So Barabbas, convicted in prison, awaiting a well-deserved cross in the eyes of the Romans and in the eyes of the Jews. So now you can see perhaps the backstory to Pilate's calculation. He thought, I know the people hate Barabbas. I know they fear what could happen if he gets released and starts another insurrection. So surely if I offer them a choice between this Jesus of Nazareth, who a few days ago they were adoring in the streets, and this hated Barabbas, certainly they'll have to choose Barabbas. And this will all be done, and I can release Jesus. That was the custom, and that was the choice that he offered them. He'd come to a conclusion. Jesus is innocent. These charges are false. I want to let him go. He he seized on the custom, and then he offered them a choice. A choice that even in his pagan mind, his secular lost heart, even he would say, of course they're going to make the criminal head to the cross. They couldn't crucify this good man. 
Well, then there is the call of the people back to him. Luke 23, verse 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man, pointing to Jesus up on the portico. And release to us Barabbas. We'll take Barabbas. Stirred by the priests, but filled with their own hatred of Jesus. Make no mistake, the scripture says they all cried out together. It wasn't just some angry Pharisees in the back. It was all the people on the square. What had happened from a glorious Palm Sunday morning where they were shouting and throwing their cloaks at his feet, now bleeding for his blood? Nothing had happened. Their true character was just emerging. It's the true character of every man or woman who has their sin revealed. Jesus, early in his days of ministry, described this reality in John chapter 3. He predicted what would happen in John 3.19. He said, and this is the judgment. This, This reveals the depth of human sin. This is what will be seen, Jesus said in John 3.19. The light has come into the world. What was the light? It's not a what, it's a who. It's the Lord Jesus, the light of the world. He would stride into Jerusalem in that final week. He he would preach for three years before that. He would bring miracles and compassion and wisdom, but also he would preach of their sin and of his coming death for their sin. The light has come into the world, Jesus said about himself, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. That's what descended on the square that day. Men and women were acting as lost and depraved men and women would. Because someone had come a-preaching and he'd preached about their sin. The light had shone on them all week long about their sin and their need of a Savior. And they'd had enough of it. Why? Because their works were evil. People loved the darkness rather than the light. Believe me, if this whole event had taken place again today, the crowd would shout the same thing. And they do. Oh, what a moment. What a moment to understand that the Bible says we're lost, we're in darkness, we're depraved. We love darkness, we hate the light. And we protect our evil when it's exposed. Well, there was a final consequence to this. And you see it in the last part of the passage. Pilate is stunned. He tries once again in verse 20 to talk them out of this moral madness. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting. Look how much they owned it. Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Jesus was guiltless even in the eyes of a pagan Roman. He was guiltless in the eyes of the Father. He was guiltless in the eyes of the world. He was guiltless in every way in his personal life. He was the perfect spotless Lamb of God, the only perfect man to ever walk the planet. And even Pilate acknowledges this man has no guilt I'll therefore punish and release him. He makes one final offer. Just let me scourge him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. 
and their voices prevailed. Pilate finally crumbles. He owns this sin too. Pilate should never have have listened to the people. He should have exercised righteous judgment, bitten the bullet of the politics and the mob. Pilate collapses and decided that their demand should be granted. He gave in to the mob. He let them make the choice. He'll own that for all eternity. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Death for the blameless. Freedom for the guilty. Now people, when they consider and hear this story, have for centuries said, what a shocking story. What a sad, almost mindless moment this was. What a a great wrong that was done, and they're correct. In fact, men and women, over the arc of human history, with all the wickedness that has been done or that will be done, in my opinion, this was the greatest gathering of human moral failure and sin and evil that ever took place on a morning because they took the spotless and blameless, love-filled Son of God and executed him. But you see, in the midst of all that, that's where the story comes out. It's a great story hidden in what we look at as a tragedy and a moral wrong. Remember, God in sovereignty was all over this. The scripture says, God set him forth as a sacrifice for our sins. Let me bring it to the second dimension, the significance of this story and now of Barabbas' place. Barabbas in this story and all their decisions about him, the whole story that revolves around this exchange of an innocent man for a guilty one. Barabbas was an image of every one of us before we came to faith. You think about it. He had been guilty of rebellion against the moral laws of the universe that he lived in, and he was deeply guilty. He'd been convicted by the highest rulership there was, and he'd been condemned to a penalty that he had to pay. He was sitting in awaiting judgment, and he was helpless to do anything about it. Men and women, that's where we sat before we met Jesus Christ. That's where every sinner stands. And then suddenly, in a turn of events that no one expected, a guilty, rebellious, condemned, judgment-awaiting man is suddenly saved by a substitute. The story of Barabbas is the story of the great substitution of salvation. The innocent for the guilty. 
And it's the story of every one of us, you see. Romans gives us some insight into this in Romans chapter 3. It tells us that we were just like Barabbas. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's God's judgment and discernment about humanity. That's where you and I were. That was the sentence that was delivered after our trial before heaven's courtroom. All of us stood there with that sentence on our heads. But then mercy moves into the picture. Go back, go farther in the chapter in Romans 3 to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You could call that the statement that was made in heaven's courtroom when the gavel fell on your life as you've lived it. And God would say, when I look at you, you have sinned and you fall short of the glory of God. All of us do. We're awaiting sentence, but now look at the miracle that takes place in the next verse. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. That word means to pay the price on someone's head. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That is a word for a payment that satisfies a penalty by his blood. Just as Barabbas' condemned life was suddenly saved by an innocent, spotless, perfect substitute as a pure act of grace and as an unexpected gift, that's what salvation was to you and to me. That's why we had the scripture read in our hearing. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hello, Barabbas. Oh, don't miss the the story that's our story and his saving story. (laughs) Of course, I wondered what might have gone through Barabbas' life on that bloody Friday. All of this took place early in the morning between 4 and 6 a.m., scholars say, on that bloody Friday. By sunset of that day, it had all been done. Jesus had been executed. He had died. His body was taken down from the cross, and he was settled into a tomb by sunset. I wonder how the day ended for Barabbas. He'd been waiting day after day in the Roman prison in the praetorium there in Jerusalem. He knew that every day he was closer to his own crucifixion day. And so when the Roman guard walked in later that day on that Friday and looked at him and said, get up. Barabbas must have thought, well, this must mean it's my crucifixion day. But then when the Roman guard told him, hold out your hands, Barabbas chained at both wrists, held out his hands 
And suddenly the Roman guard pulls a mallet from his belt and strikes the lock pin on one wrist and then the other and the chains fall to the floor. Barabbas can't believe what he's seeing. And the guard looks at him and says, you've been pardoned. You're free. Barabbas in stunned moments. What? How? The guard looks back at him and said, Pilate crucified Jesus of Nazareth in your place. You're free. Now go. Well, what had he done? Barabbas might have asked. Nothing, said the guard. Now go. You're pardoned. Go. Imagine the first moment when Barabbas led down the hallway of that prison instead of heading to Crucifixion Hill is ushered out into the street and he's squinting as the sun hits his eyes for the first time in months. And, and he's brushed by by men and women who are free people heading to the marketplace or to a friend's. And he's caught up in the crowd and he's a free man, pardoned. Nothing he had ever done in his past could be held against him by law. Incredible. I wonder what went through his mind. Maybe the hardened criminal in him was so deep and his self-involvement was so great that he thought, oh, lucky me. And he walked off into his new life. Or maybe something crossed his conscience and he might have asked the question, why me? Who knows? I do know that three days later he would be asking more questions because three days later rumor would start to run through Jerusalem and people would start talking about the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, whom Pilate crucified on Friday, has risen from the dead. His tomb is empty. You can go and see that it's empty. And his disciples said they, they met him and that he has risen. He's alive. And it shot through the city. Barabbas surely would have heard it. And maybe he wondered, who was this man? I wonder if he ever saw the real story. Maybe he was in Jerusalem some 40 days later when Peter went to preaching on Pentecost. And he began to preach about the risen Lord Jesus Christ and his death for sinners. And 3,000 in one day came to faith in that Savior. Maybe Barabbas was toward the end of the crowd. Who knows? Maybe he stepped forward and was baptized. He surely had time to think about it because you, when, you, when, you, when you really understand this story, for the rest of his life, people knew who he was. When they met him in a conversation and he he says, I'm Barabbas. They'd say, Barabbas, where have I heard that name before? You're the guy that Jesus of Nazareth was killed in place of. Barabbas had this question to answer all of his days. Who is he? Why did he do what he did? And could he be a savior for me? We never know 
how that story ended. But if you're here today or you're watching online and you know that you are convicted of sin, you know you're condemned and rightly so, and you know that you are helpless to answer the charges of God against your life, that you're Barabbas in soul, you can turn to him in a moment and be pardoned and set free.